From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air. Next month marks the sixth anniversary of the fatwa, or death warrant, issued against writer Salman Rushdie by the Ayatollah Khomeini. It hasn't stopped Rushdie from writing or from speaking out on his behalf and that of other endangered writers. He's lived in hiding for the past six years, but recently he's been trying to lead a slightly more normal life. On today's Fresh Air, Salman Rushdie tells us about how he's trying to do that, and we'll talk about his new collection of short stories, East-West. And book critic Maureen Corrigan reviews the new biography of Thomas Paine by Jack Fruckman. That's all coming up on Fresh Air. First, the news. From National Public Radio News in Washington, I'm Ann Taylor. In Los Angeles, defense attorneys will continue their opening statement tomorrow in the O.J. Simpson murder trial. Simpson himself bared his left knee to the jury today to show football injuries, and his attorney said that he had been suffering from acute arthritis in his wrist the day his former wife and a friend of hers were murdered. Defense attorney Johnny Cochran told the jury the case against Simpson was a rush to judgment. Kitty Feldy of member station KCRW reports. Attorney Johnny Cochran challenged the prosecution's assertion that it had done everything it could to exclude Simpson as the murder suspect. Cochran said one witness will testify she saw mysterious strangers outside Nicole Brown Simpson's house the night of the murders. A witness Cochran said both the police and the district attorney's office were not interested in interviewing. Another witness, Cochran said, will testify that Simpson's car was still parked outside his home at the time of the murders. A witness interviewed by police but not included in any report. Cochran reminded the jury several times that this was a murder trial, not a domestic abuse case. And he described Simpson as a very generous man whom experts will say does not resemble the classic wife beater. For National Public Radio, this is Kitty Feldy from the Criminal Courthouse in Los Angeles. Earlier, the judge agreed to leave a remote-controlled television camera in the courtroom as long as the camera operator maintains one steady shot. Three new studies in the latest issue of the New England Journal of Medicine shed new light on why a small group of people infected with the AIDS virus do not get sick. NPR's Joe Palka has more. Scientists have known for years that some people can be infected with HIV for a decade or more but not get AIDS. The new studies indicate that people who get AIDS in a matter of months or years after they become infected have far more virus in their blood than those individuals who've stayed healthy for more than 10 years. It's possible that by studying these so-called long-term survivors, scientists may get a clue about how to help others beat the disease. In one study, Ron DeRosier of the New England Regional Primate Center found one patient who had a virus that was similar to one that he has used successfully to vaccinate monkeys against harmful forms of the virus. DeRosier hopes this may lead to an effective vaccine for humans. This is Joe Palka in Washington. Top officials in the Clinton administration are again calling for approval of a $40 billion loan package from Mexico. Secretary of the Treasury Robert Rubin says it's important to keep Mexico's current financial crisis from spreading to other developing nations. On Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrials moved up more than eight points to close at 3,871.45 on volume of 342 million shares. This is NPR News.
There was a false news report in Moscow this morning that Russian forces had shot down a combat missile fired from northern Europe. The missile turned out to be a NASA-funded rocket to study the northern lights launched from Norway. The Russian government had been told of the launch, and the Interfax news agency later conceded its report was wrong and blamed the mistake on false information from a high-ranking military source. Officials in both Moscow and Oslo have denied that the missile was military. In El Salvador, hundreds of former soldiers are continuing to occupy several government buildings in the capital. They are demanding talks on their claims of compensation after they were demobilized at the end of a 12-year-long civil war. Emma Patterson filed this report for the BBC. The Salvadoran police have set up a tight cordon around the legislative building, which is being occupied by more than a 1,000 demonstrators. Thirteen deputies are trapped inside the building, and the protesters are refusing to let them go. The government is clearly worried that the protest could escalate still further, and has asked the UN to intervene. The head of the UN mission in El Salvador, Mr. Ter Horst, said none of the former paramilitaries were entitled to compensation under the terms of the 1992 peace accords. The demonstrators say compensation should be extended to at least 40,000 former combatants who fought on the side of the army and have refused to end their protest until the government meets their demands. Emma Patterson reporting for the BBC from San Salvador. In Bosnia, a new deadline has been set. The government has given Serb forces two months to accept a peace plan that divides the nation and until the 1st of May for a final peace agreement. That's when a current ceasefire is to end. In trading today in Europe, the dollar was mixed against other major foreign currencies. Gold prices were unchanged. I'm Ann Taylor, National Public Radio News in Washington. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. February 14th will mark the sixth anniversary of the fatwa, or death warrant, issued by the Ayatollah Khomeini against writer Salman Rushdie. The late leader of Iran put a $1 million price on Rushdie's head, condemning his novel, The Satanic Verses, as blasphemy. Rushdie has lived in hiding ever since, protected by special police from London's Scotland Yard. But as we're about to hear, he's been surfacing more and more, trying to lead a slightly more normal life. In fact, earlier today, he went to the NPR Bureau in London to talk with us about his new collection of short stories called East West. The theme of cultural displacement runs throughout the book. Rushdie grew up in Bombay and was educated in London, where he decided to stay. One story in his new book, called The Auction of the Ruby Slippers, is about the people bidding on the magical slippers from the Wizard of Oz. Fundamentalists want to acquire the slippers so they can destroy the slippers. That's okay with the liberal auctioneers who think, what's the point of tolerance if the intolerant are not tolerated also? I asked Rushdie if he thinks that's the attitude some liberals have toward the Muslim militants who want to destroy him. I do think one of the interesting things that has been raised by the whole thing that happened to me in which that story tries a little bit to discuss is what is the limit um, of a tolerant society. Uh, in the story, of course, it becomes a satire about capitalism. They say anyone's money is as good as anyone else's, and if people have the top bid and want to buy, buy these things to burn them, then that's fair enough. Well, I think, you know, I guess the author's view is that that might not be fair enough, but I'm biased. Well, I think your story, too, is in a way a satire about the limits of multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that's true. There's a, there's a passage in there somewhere about 
about rage, but how it seems that um, rage has become, if you like, a new value. That if you can lay claim to a certain degree of rage, it it seems to uh, entitle almost any sort of bad behaviour. And and the more rage you can claim to feel, the more the, the worse you're allowed to behave. Uh, it, it's a uh, it's, this is a new phenomenon, really, the idea of anger as being self-justifying, but it is, I think, um, something thrown up by the multiculturalist issue. What are your latest feelings about the support or lack of support you've gotten from the Islamic intellectual community? Well, oh, the Islamic intellectual community, I must say, has um, came out quite strongly uh, a year or so ago, and there was a, a book which I think has been published in the States of in which a, a, a hundred or so uh, leading intellectuals from the Muslim world, um, you know, spoke up on my behalf, and that was that was very uh, important, I think, because it, if only because it it exploded the Islamist myth that this is in some way a, a West versus East um, struggle, and it, it went to show that there's just there's plenty of voices in the East um, who feel as I do, and perhaps what prevented them speaking up before is that people were trying to scare them. Oh, I want to get back to the idea of the limits of multiculturalism. Do you feel that some people who might otherwise speak out against any kind of death sentence that's put on a writer's head have been reluctant to do so because they feel they can't pass judgment on another culture or another religion? Well, I think perhaps of all the many stupidities around this issue, that's probably been one of the most stupid. Uh, and the idea that to object to the murder of somebody for writing a book is somehow culturally specific as an objection, and there must be other cultures in which it's fine to kill people for writing books. Uh, it, it seems to me that's multiculturalism gone mad. There has been little of that. There has been little of that. And um, I hope that that kind of attitude is dying away um, uh, at the moment, because the, because the obvious fact is that free speech is not of value specific to Western culture. It's specific to all cultures, and there's just as many, there are many people fighting on, on behalf of that value in, in Islamic countries, in, in, the, in the East generally, in the Third World generally, and having to fight against it in a way that's much more real than anyone in the United States, because quite often their safety is at issue in a way that it's not in the West. So then to demean them by saying, well, actually, it's not your culture, seems to me to heap um, insult on injury. The sixth anniversary of the fatwa is coming up February 14th, just a couple of weeks away. Is there any new hope on the horizon or any changes in strategy that you have planned? As far as political hope, I mean, no, I think genuinely I don't think there is. I don't think anybody's doing very much about it. Um, I myself have really reached the point of what one can only call boredom with the fatwa. Um, I mean, I'm trying more and more to uh, to lead as 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 much of an ordinary writer's life as I possibly can, and um, and as far as possible to to ignore the thing. Um, obviously, it's not possible to really ignore it completely. But as far as I can, I am. And I think one of the things that's important for me, having a book of stories out, is that for a change, there's a way in which I can speak again as a writer instead of as this kind of political hot potato. And in addition to the stories, of course, I've, I've just literally just finished a novel, so so there's there's that's just gone into uh, into the publishers, and and 
I think the best thing I can do is to go on being the writer I've always been. You know, the best thing, the best way of answering uh, any attempt at censorship is simply not to be censored and to proceed. And I think a thing that I do feel take some pride in is that I have continued and I am continuing as a writer and, and increasingly my interest is to, to, to do my work and to discuss my work and let the rest of it go hang, frankly. Are you saying that you've given up hope of actually getting the fatwa revoked so, so now your strategy is to just uh, try to live with it? I haven't given up the hope, no. I mean, I think it's very important that the fatwa is cancelled. I think it's a, it's a fantastic... Um, assault on the integrity of, of, of free societies and on the rights of individuals in those societies. Uh, but I don't, what I'm saying is, I don't see any political initiative to get this thing sorted out. I wish there were, but I don't see it. And it's, it's always been the case that this has not been a problem for me to solve. It's always been something that needed to be solved at government-to-government -government level. Um, now, if nothing's happening, there's really very little I can do about it except to proceed with my life. So that's what I'm trying to do. If you managed, or if international efforts managed to get the fatwa revoked, would you still live in some fear that there would be Islamic vigilantes on Not your really. Not really. I think this is a, this is a, a kind of... Um, Figment of the of the very colourful imaginations of, of of the general public and of the journalistic community. Uh, I mean, the fact is that in this entire period, there's been I've experienced a lot of support from ordinary Muslims around the world, and there has been no repeat no effort um, to to injure me in any way that has not been directly connected to the government of Iran. I mean that's that is the those are the people who are up to no good. And, and no one else. So, I mean, yes, there might be a sort of r residual problem of the occasional hooligan, but I must say I think probably the average movie star or, or, or rock musician would face a bigger problem than me. I don't know if this is a question you can answer or not, but um, have there been direct attempts on your life in the past few years? Oh, well, not, not, uh, not in the sense that they haven't ever got anywhere close to me, but certainly I've been made aware... Um, by um, intelligence sources from time to time that there were, in their view, um, attempts being made. Um, I mean, not, not in the very recent past, but certainly, yes, there have been efforts that we've been aware of. Could you discuss any of them, or would it be best not to? Well, it's difficult to say in too much detail, but I mean, the fact is that in, in the last few years, a, a number of people... Uh, with Iranian connections or actually Iranian citizens have been expelled from this country. Um, and the reason they were expelled was certainly because they were here uh, for reasons connected with the fatwa. Um, in the last case of that was a couple of years ago, and, and um, the people involved were, in I think, two of the three cases actually working at the Iranian mission in London. So the connection was very clear. Um, it's, I, mean, I, think that, I wish this were not so, but it is so, that there is one government in the world that appears to think that killing people is fine. Um, this is not, that's to say, a general problem of the Islamic world versus Salman Rushdie. It's a specific problem of a government that kills its own citizens all the time, that murders its own writers, tortures and jails its own writers. Recently, a very distinguished Iranian writer died um, in jail, um, quotes accidentally, unquotes, uh, an, an official explanation that no one believes. All they're doing in this case is to seek to export that technique.
You are the writer best known to Americans who has a fatwa that's been imposed by militant Islamic fundamentalists, but there, there are others as well. Would you care to, to mention a couple of them and, and to put yourself in, into that context? Well, yeah, certainly. I and mean, I think the, the, the thing that people, I think, perhaps haven't, haven't realized is that this technique of using religious decrees to attempt to silence uh, free speech is one being used more and more um, across the world, not just in Iran. I mean, the Iranian fatwa against me is well known. Uh, but, for instance, the um, Egyptian Nobel Prize laureate Najib Mahfouz uh, was uh, threatened in a similar way uh, by religious authorities in his country and within the last couple of months was actually attacked as a result of this and stabbed in the neck. And although he's a very old gentleman, he, he did very fortunately survive, I'm glad to say, but nevertheless that was a direct result of a, of a fatwa. Um, similar cases have occurred in uh, in Turkey, where where money has been offered for the deaths of, of writers who have been criticised by religious authorities, or in Bangladesh, where a fatwa was issued against one writer recently, um, and 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 in many other countries, and, and notably at the moment, one would say in Algeria, where uh, the religious fanatical forces in that country are have embarked upon a campaign of almost deliberate campaign of assassinating writers and journalists as, as much as possible uh, and people are being killed for for virtually no money at all i mean let's say the bounty money being involved is is petty but people are being murdered you know for 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 a, for a couple of cents what do you think the international community should do or, or could do about well, these attacks against writers well, I mean, clearly there are there is plenty that can be done. In the, in 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 my case, it's it's actually easiest because we're talking here about a, a British citizen living in England, uh, who is to be defended against an uh, an extraterritorial um, illegal act. Um, of course, the issue of what happens when people are in their own countries and being attacked by their own states is more is more complex. But in many cases, these are states, such as Bangladesh, very dependent on, on Western assistance. And it's perfectly possible, if one wishes to use um, that economic lever for on human rights uh, cases, to do so. Um, unfortunately, it seems as if Western countries are rather reluctant to use economic levers on human rights issues. Um, notably in the case of China, another country in which um, free speech, um, free expression is being severely repressed. Uh, the methods are there if people want to use them. I mean, the, the, the worrying thing is that governments of, this, of the so-called free world who claim to stand up for these issues don't seem very interested in using those levers. Salman Rushdie is my guest. We'll be back after a short break. This is Fresh Air. just joining us, my guest is Salman Rushdie, and he, by the way, has a new collection of short stories called East-West. You know, so often you write in, in metaphor, in parable, in, in, in one case you wrote a, a fairy tale. Do you comprehend literalists, people who take everything literally, including 
the Bible or the Koran? Well, I mean, of course I comprehend them because I write about them too. Um, but it seems to me that uh, it's, it's a particularly unintelligent view of the world. I mean, that's to say, if you were to say to, say to me whether I thought the, um, that sacred texts were, were beautiful, or whether they contained evocative images or had meaning uh, as poetry and so on, and of course they are, in many cases, very, uh, texts of extremely high literary value of that sort. But if you ask me whether I really think that um, archangels stand on the horizon and fill the sky and dictate to, to people on top of a mountain the uncreated word of God, I mean, that's say, if I'm supposed to accept that as a literal truth, then obviously I don't. If that's blasphemy, then that's blasphemy, and it doesn't really, I mean, it seems to be the idea of blasphemy, long ago exploded idea in, in, in the free world. Um, it, it would be very dangerous to allow that idea to resurface now, because basically all that blasphemy says is a way of telling people to shut up. It's a way of saying, you can't think this because I tell you to. Now, actually, the whole history of the, uh, the fight for free expression in Europe during the 18th century Enlightenment, um, which was the basis of the world's idea of free speech, that whole fight was a fight not against the state but against the church. That's to say writers like Voltaire and Rousseau and Diderot and um, the writers of the Enlightenment deliberately used blasphemy, deliberately used the idea of speaking up against uh, religious uh, sacred cows, if you like, in order to create the notion that free speech was not for the church or the Inquisition or any other religious body to control. And out of that comes the Western notion of free speech. Did you grow up with literalism? No, not really. No, I mean, the country I grew up in, you know, is a, is a secular democratic state, India. Um, the family I grew up in was very committed to those ideas and uh, was the least literalist or least actually not particularly religious family. Um, there was, in my uh, childhood and my growing up days in, in India, very little in the way of Islamic fundamentalism, uh, there is, there, which is really a worldwide phenomenon that's only happened in the last 20 years. Uh, there was very little in those days in the way of Hindu fundamentalism, which there now also is in India. Um, I mean, religious extremism of this type simply did not exist in, in India and Pakistan in those days. Um, when, when fundamentalists talk about, you know, having the only true uh, version of reality, it is worth reminding ourselves, first of all, that this is only 20 years old, and secondly, that what we call fundamentalism is not a religious movement but a political movement, uh, an attempt to control the state by using certain uh, very extreme versions of theological dogma. So you don't at all feel that uh, your writing violates a tradition you were brought up in? No, it doesn't. certainly discusses it. In many cases, it dissents from it. But I think that's what all writers do with all traditions. I don't think tradition is a straitjacket. Tradition is something to rip apart and trample on. You know, what would you, how would you have the history of, of, of art in any country if people simply went on reverentially saying traditional things? Um, tradition is very important, it gives you a framework, it gives you something to think about, but it also gives you something to kick out against and argue about and change. Uh, I mean, I come from a generation that believed in social change and intellectual change and artistic change, and I think that's what, that's what I've always tried to devote my writing to, not to some kind of um, moribund reverence for the past. What are some of the ways in which you think you've changed in the past six years? Well, I've got a lot older. There's that. How old um, are you now? 
uh, well, I'll be 48 this year, but so this has been more or less all my 40s. Um, that's that's annoying. I feel as if I've lost a lot of um, of useful living time, which I could have done a lot more with if I'd been permitted to. Um, I don't know. I think as a, I, I'm I'm really more interested at the moment in how in how my writings developed, and and I think one of the things that I was pleased about in these stories was that I felt that I'd been able to to, to break through, if you like, into into a certain number of new kinds of writing. Um, the, the stories in the middle section, for instance, are uh, in which in which you mentioned the Ruby Slipper story, but the the other two stories there, the one about Christopher Columbus and the one about Yorick, are, are ways, are new ways for me to to look at Western culture by by, if you like, deconstructing and reconstructing various um, iconic figures in that culture. Um, and the last section of stories, which are about uh, the meeting points, if you like, the crossover points between the East and the West that I know, that's to say India and England, um, allowed me to find, uh, if you like, a much more personal voice. A lot of those stories come from more directly autobiographical material, perhaps, than, I, than, than some of my stuff, and, and, and are perhaps more directly emotional than some of my stuff. And um, I was pleased to be able to do, to do that. And I wanted to write more uh, personal, emotional writing in that way. And I've, uh, that's one of the things that I think I've done more of. I, I wonder if you ever um, want to write the kind of autobiography that would probably be too dangerous for you to write right now, because you'd have to reveal things that you maybe well, I shouldn't never, you reveal. Know, it had, the funny thing is, uh, yes, probably, is the answer. Um, at, it had always seemed to me completely unnecessary for novelists to write autobiographies. Uh, and it, until this thing happened to me, it had never ever occurred to me that I would write an autobiography. But I do seem to have been cursed with an interesting life. Um, and and if one has a life like this, then in the end you do want to tell its story. So do you have any way of keeping a journal that absolutely nobody would have access to so you can oh, record yeah. what's happening in your life? Oh, yes. I mean, I've, I've, kept, uh, I've kept quite a careful journal throughout this time. Um, so it's all there. Does writing give you any more or less pleasure than it used to? Uh, well, just recently, it depends what day you ask me that question. Really. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, uh, just because I happen to have completed a collection of stories recently and delivered a novel last Friday, just at the moment, I'm feeling rather good about my writing. I'm feeling very, uh, I'm feeling a certain glow of achievement. Um, I don't think. I think writing is writing, and, and when it's going well, it does make you feel good, and when it's going bad, it makes you feel dreadful um, and stupid. Um, but I don't think, um, in general, my attitude to, to it has altered, except in the regard that I think I feel it very important that I demonstrate to all concerned that I am not being silenced by this thing. Um, and I am continuing to write, and I'm not also simply becoming a creature of the threat. I'm not, I don't wish to be a writer who can be defined only in terms of this threat because I'm another kind of writer and I hope that what, happens, what happened in England will now happen in America because when these stories were published in England uh, one of the great delights of that publication was that broadly speaking the people who reviewed it, uh, reviewed the book, reviewed it 
on its own terms. I mean, reviewed it as a work of fiction, as a work of literature, and, and expressed their liking or otherwise for it in those terms. From what I can see of the beginnings of the American publication and the, the very flattering reviews that have appeared there, people are able to do that there as well. And so that's a way, that's a way back for me. That's a way of saying uh, I'm not just this, this curious, invisible figure with a, uh, with a knife hanging over his head, but I'm, in fact, if one was to say it in a, most simply, I, I hope, a comic writer. Salman Rushdie. He'll be back with us in the second part of our show. Rushdie has a new collection of short stories called East-West. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Share is now available on cassette. To order, call 1-800-934-6000. That's 1-800-934-6000. The cost is $9.95 plus shipping and handling. Not all programs are available. Major funding for Fresh Air is provided by Borders, where the love of books and music sets the standard. This is NPR, National Public Radio. up in the second part of our talk, Salman Rushdie reflects on his life, his writing, and the notion of home. Next month marks the sixth anniversary of the fatwa, or death warrant, issued by the Ayatollah Khomeini. And book critic Maureen Corrigan reviews the new biography, Thomas Paine, Apostle of Freedom, by Jack Fruckman. That's all coming up on Fresh Air. From National Public Radio News in Washington, I'm Craig Windham. O.J. Simpson showed jurors at his murder trial scars from old football knee injuries, and defense attorney Johnny Cochran said Simpson also suffered from acute arthritis in his wrists. The defense is suggesting those conditions would have made Simpson unable to carry out the killings of his ex-wife and Ronald Goldman. Cochran said Simpson was the victim of a rush to judgment by authorities who mishandled evidence and ignored a witness who says she saw four men near the murder scene at about the time of the killings. The House began debate today on a constitutional amendment requiring a balanced federal budget. The measure has bipartisan support and is expected to pass with the necessary two-thirds majority. NPR's Brian Naylor reports. 
The balanced budget amendment is a key part of the Republican contract with America. It would force the federal government to operate with a balanced budget in seven years. Democrats want to force Republicans to outline what programs would be cut to eliminate the deficit by 2002. House Speaker Newt Gingrich today ridiculed that notion. When John F. Kennedy stood in the well of the House and said, we will put a man on the moon in this decade, he didn't say, and it will be with a Saturn V rocket, and it'll be an Apollo mission, and they'll land at a certain point. He said, we can assemble the people to do it, but our will is there. Gingrich says Social Security is off the table, but reducing some Pentagon spending will be examined. The most contentious debate will occur tomorrow when a version of the amendment requiring a three-fifths majority in order to raise taxes comes up. While most House Republicans support it, it's not expected to win enough Democratic votes for passage. This is Brian Naylor at the Capitol. Israel has given permission for the construction and sale of almost 2,000 homes to Jewish settlers in the occupied West Bank. Within the next two years, up to 1,200 more houses will be built and sold. The Palestinians are demanding an end to the construction. The BBC's Stephen Sacker has this report from Jerusalem. The Israeli government has not bowed to Palestinian demands that all construction activity in Jewish settlements be halted. Today's special cabinet committee meeting gave the go-ahead for almost 2,000 new houses in a key West Bank settlement over the next two years. Male Adumim, though in occupied territory, is regarded by the Israelis as an integral part of what they call Greater Jerusalem. Its continued expansion is sure to rouse new Palestinian anger and frustration. However, the Israeli government is trying to avoid a head-on confrontation over settlement policy. It says all building work in existing settlements will be privately funded and that a freeze on new settlements will be strictly enforced. Such assurances are unlikely to satisfy Yasser Arafat. The Palestinians see the distinction between government and privately funded construction as meaningless. The BBC's Stephen Sacker. The Environmental Protection Agency has announced steps to speed up the development of inner city sites that were once tainted with industrial waste. This is NPR News. There was heavy fighting in Chechnya today as Russian troops tried to move outward from the captured center of the capital of Grozny. Two Russian helicopters crashed after they were fired on by Chechen forces. Federal Reserve Board Chairman Alan Greenspan told the Senate Finance Committee that the U.S. economy remains strong despite six interest rate hikes last year designed to ease economic growth enough to prevent a resurgence of inflation. Greenspan said he did not know if the Fed would raise interest rates another notch next week, but that action is widely expected by the financial markets. Greenspan also urged Congress to approve $40 billion in loan guarantees to help restore confidence in Mexico's economy. House Speaker Newt Gingrich says that proposal will not be considered this week, but he predicted it will ultimately pass. Gingrich confirmed a concern voiced last night by President Clinton that Republicans will try to repeal the ban on certain types of assault-style weapons. NPR's Elizabeth Arnold reports. In his State of the Union address last night, President Clinton suggested that there was an effort brewing in the House to repeal the Brady Bill and the ban on 19 assault-style weapons. He said several members of the House had lost their seats over the issue last year, and he would not allow gun control to be repealed. His warning was met with boos and hissing. Today, House Speaker Newt Gingrich said there would be no need for the Brady Bill waiting period if an instant check system was up and running to screen handgun buyers. He also said that the Judiciary Committee will attempt to repeal the weapons ban this year. That would give new House members an opportunity to vote against gun control. It's unlikely an effort to repeal the ban would clear the Senate. I'm Elizabeth Arnold at the Capitol. 
The Illinois Supreme Court has for a second time decided to take a three-and-a-half-year-old child away from the adoptive parents who raised him and to award custody to the boy's biological father. The father has never seen the child. This is National Public Radio News. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross, back with Salman Rushdie. For nearly six years, he's lived with a death warrant issued against him by the Ayatollah Khomeini, the late Islamic fundamentalist leader of Iran. The death warrant is punishment for Rushdie's novel, The Satanic Verses, but it hasn't stopped him from writing. His new book is a collection of short stories called East-West. Our interview was recorded earlier today at the NPR Bureau in London. The other two times that we've spoken on Fresh Air, it was by telephone, and you joined us by phone from an undisclosed location. Mm -hmm. Now you're at a studio, um, and I know where you are. Of course, we're recording, and by the time this conversation is on the air, you won't be there anymore. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But why are you able to do that now, whereas you weren't in uh, during for the previous times that we spoke? Well, just because I'm because I'm tired of being shut up in a room. I mean, it just it, it seems to me that it's perfectly possible, and it's, indeed I've been doing it quite a lot recently to, to lead most of a normal life as lo- while while still being um, cautious. I mean, that's to say, there are a number of people in England and in, in most countries who, for one reason or another, receive police protection: government ministers, certain businessmen, certain judges, so on and so on, um, and me. Uh, the argument I've made throughout this time is that protecting people is not the same thing as concealing them. Um, none of these other um, eminent people have been obliged to be concealed in the way that I was. And the point that I made was that, you know, I, I was very grateful to be offered protection, but I, but I wanted something very much more like what was offered everyone else. And broadly speaking, that's what's happened. And um, so far, so good. Well, whose call is that? How much power do you say, well, I, I want to go out now, so, so guards, come with me? Or well, do they tell you if you can go? Uh, no, they don't. I mean, it's, uh, broadly speaking, it's, it's my call. But, I mean, clearly there is, there is a conversation about this that goes on between me and the, and the police. What was the worst period for you? Well, actually... Clearly, it was, it was in, in one sense, was worst at the beginning because it was very shocking and disorienting, and um, it was very, um, well, it, it, it overturned many of my attitudes to the world because I had to rethink all, all sorts of things. I mean, it was simply a huge shock. Um, there's another sense in which it gets worse the longer it goes on. Um, that's to say, it doesn't become easier for me to do this. It becomes... Uh, in ways that I'm perhaps not disclosing in this conversation, more stressful. Uh, There is a cumulative effect in this thing. And I think sometimes people assume that because I've put up with it for six years, I can put up with it indefinitely. Well, it's not true. You know, it seems to me you've had to learn how to be two things at once. You've had to learn how to be at the center of international interest and at the same time how to learn to be invisible. Um, yeah, <laughs> those are two really different extremes. Yes, they are. It's it's very it is very strange. Um, I'm trying at the moment to be less invisible because it's the uh, because that's a very frustrating thing uh, to be. the The international political thing. I must say, after two years in which I more or less worked flat out as a political campaigner 
and as a result was unable to do any work. Um, I stopped doing that just over a year ago now. And the result of that has been the most productive year I can remember in years. I mean, this collection of stories uh, and a finished novel. And I must say, that's made me feel a lot better than the previous two years. So, so I think the best thing I can do for myself now is just to be myself. Was there a turning point for you when you thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to throw myself into this international campaign. I'm going to spend more time writing. Well, I think, you know, once I'd been to America and, and met with President Clinton and other high officials at the White House, um, and when shortly after that I was able to uh, address the European Parliament or a large chunk of it, I felt then that I had really done as much as I could usefully do in a campaigning way. That's to say I'd been to see the leaders of most of the major countries of the free world and had been given strong assurances of their support. Um, and I, my feeling was, well, over to you, folks, and I'm going to go home and do my job. Uh, that's, and that's what I've been doing ever since. I, I wish they'd been doing theirs a bit better. Do you have any taste for the cloak-and-dagger life, for the amount of um, secrecy and espionage that you've been involved with? No, no, I loathe it. I, mean, I really do. I think anybody who's known me uh, for any length of time before this knows that I was always a very gregarious individual and, um, and actually a very unsecretive individual. Um, so actually it couldn't have happened to a worse person, really. I mean, for a gregarious and unsecretive person to learn about isolation and secrecy is, is, um, is not easy. Um, how often, you have several guards from Scotland Yard. How long do they stay with you? How often do they change? Uh, well, I think, I think actually I mustn't talk about procedural matters. That's but, fine. But, uh, yeah. but broadly speaking, uh, I mean, I, I've, a lot of them have been with me for a long time, and I, I have got to know them very well. I guess that's what I was wondering, how close yeah. you get with them. Oh, yes. Well, I think I, I once joked with them that one of these days I could really take the lid off the special branch, and I think, I think probably there is no writer in the world who's had such a detailed indoctrination, or, or not, well, not indoctrination exactly, but um, entree to the world of, of secret police. Um, and certainly, if I wanted to write a kind of John le Carré-style novel, I suspect I now could. But you'd have no interest. I don't know. You never know. Right. <laughs> never know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> never say never. Salman Rushdie is my guest. He has a new collection of short stories called East West. More after a short break. We'll, we'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. with writer Salman Rushdie. My favorite of your stories in your new collection, mm -hmm. East West, is, is a, a story at the end mm -hmm. um, called The Quarter. And it's, um, it's about a family that moves from, what, India to, yeah. um, to England. And um, the, the, the family starts to unravel, and there's a, just a lot about what, what home really, what family means and what home means. Yes, that's right. And... Um, I'm wondering what home means to you now. The literal home you, you, you live in is one that you must keep secret, and I don't know, 
I don't know if you stay in one place at a time or whether you have yeah. to rove around from night to night like you, you mm -hmm. used to in, in the early days of the fatwa. But when you think of home, do you think of the place that you spend your nights in now or is it something else that you think about? No, I think, you see, the, I, had to, I had to in some ways get rid of the idea of home at quite an early age. I, and that's to say I, was, I came to England uh, to go to school when I, when I was uh, very young, uh, when I was 14 or so. And, in, and then my family also moved across the world quite a lot. And so the idea of, 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 of the, the orthodox idea of home as being the place where you were born and raised and where your folks live and where you are known intimately um, is, is something which I really, for obvious reasons, just for the circumstances of my life, had to abandon quite early. So I've always had a rather gypsy notion of home which I suppose has stood me in good stead in the last few years. Um, and, and, but it nevertheless remains the case that the idea of home and of our, of our attachment to the idea of place is something I've continued to write about all my life. I mean, the story you mentioned, uh, the quarter, I wanted to write about, and that's a story of the sort that I was talking earlier about, which is quite autobiographically motivated, in that it's true that my parents came to live in England uh, for a couple of years when I was 16, 17 years old. And I had wanted to write about that, that curious uh, passage of my life, um, partly because I wanted to write about what it was like to be young in, in the mid-60s, which was supposed to be such a groovy time, and, and, not, <laughs> and, and, kind of, and kind of not to know where the fun was, you know. Um, right, and think, it was the London, uh, the England swings era. <laughs> it was exactly. Went, yeah. It wasn't wasn't swinging in my vicinity. I, I wanted to know where the swinging was going on. Um, so partly, I wanted to write about that idea of a, of well, to write about adolescence, to write about the first steps towards towards love and so on. And partly, I wanted to write about what it was like to be displaced in that way. Uh, and partly, I wanted to tell the story of this this old couple having a kind of twilight autumnal love affair. And all those things came together into that story. Well, getting back to the idea of home, which you discuss in that story, when you think of home now, it means something more abstract to you. What does it mean? I, I suppose it means it means people, really. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's what it means to me. It means the people I care about. That's where I that's where I make my home. In the story that we're talking about, um, which you say is pretty autobiographical, the the main character, the narrator, who is um, what, around 16 or something, is watching his family fall apart. People are fighting. They, they don't really know where they're going to live. You yeah. know, loyalties between East and West are divided. And he, he, he says that he feels himself coming unstuck from the idea of family itself. Did you go through that during that phase of your life? In, in, in something like that, yes. I mean, the sense in which the story is autobiographical is is in, in the circumstances, I think most of the actual incidents in the story are not true, I mean, are made up. Uh, but it is true that there was a, a time uh, in my teens when, I mean, after all, it's scarcely unusual for somebody to say this about being a teenager, when I wanted to run away from home, uh, when I wanted to put as much distance as I possibly could between me and what I saw as a, a restricting environment. Um, I had a difficult relationship with my father, and the story partly is about that too. And uh, I wanted to put some distance between me and him. Is, um, your, is your father still alive? No, no, he's not. He's not been alive. So he died in eighty-seven. 
So he missed all this fun. Was he, where was he living? Then? He was he was living by then in Pakistan. So, um, but uh, I mean, we were you know we we made it up long ago. I mean, we, it was uh, the, the the kind of youthful quarrels didn't didn't persist. Um, but it's certainly it's certainly true that it was a fairly tempestuous and dislocated time when my family was living in England. Um, not only for me. Um, and yes, I mean, certainly I wanted to write about that, what happens to people when they are uprooted. But on the other hand, I think, you know, in, in of all people, I think America, a country in which everybody's come from somewhere else, one sometimes thinks, is, is a place in which what I'm talking about is, you know, is, is a very, is, I would suspect, a very shared experience, that people start in one culture, end up in another, and have to spend a certain amount of their lives thinking about the implication of that what in the story is called a double unbelonging, which could also be a double belonging. You could, you could describe that either as having no roots or as having too many roots. Um, I've always thought, for me, that it, was a, that, that it gave me a lot of creative possibilities that I've been grateful for. I mean, I like the tension um, in, the, in the pulls between the East and the West, and it's, it's something I've always tried to, um, to write out of and, and to maintain. The character in the story talks about not wanting to choose between the two cultures. And I think that's my view, too. I want to have them both. Um, you've had to learn to live with a lot of restrictions in the past six years. And mm -hmm. um, you've told us sometimes it gets very stressful. Have you learned different ways of, of coping with the stress and coping with the restrictions? Well, yes, certainly I have. But I, mean, I think mostly the way I've used uh, is, is to struggle against the restrictions, is to try and reduce them, and to try and get back as much uh, as much freedom as possible, and there has been a steady movement towards that throughout this time, and um, and I hope that will continue. How has your health uh, been? That's I must say the one thing I have been very fortunate about. I've not, uh, I mean, other than a minor problem of asthma and um, a and the need to have a couple of wisdom teeth pulled out in a hospital once, I've really not had any serious illness. Touch wood, um, might have been much more difficult if I had. Do you do things to keep in shape? Yeah, I, 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 I sit with great tedium on an exercise machine for 45 minutes or so a day and make myself sweat. I, I want to get back for a moment to the idea of the, the restrictions that you're living with and, and the mm -hmm. boredom that that can create. Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of us when we're bored, what we do is eat a lot. <laughs> oh, yes. So yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if food has... has um, ever been too much of a temptation or a problem for you? It's, it's just such a common thing to, mm -hmm. when you're under pressure or when you're bored, you eat. Oh, I see. Well, yes, there was a point where I put on some weight. It's gone now. This is radio, so I can't prove it to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did, uh, I mean, I have, I did, there was a point where I put on 20 or 30 pounds and I've, and I've basically lost them now. So I think I'm now back to something like the level of weight that I was at four or five years ago. Um, Did you do that through dieting or exercise? Exercise mostly. I mean, that's this. That's why this dreadful machine. Um, so, yes, I think there was a point, perhaps, uh, maybe three or four years ago, where. Um, maybe I did put on weight because of boredom and misery, um, but it's all gone now. When you have dreams. How often are you under the pressure of the fatwa in your dreams, and how often does that not exist? Actually, I think I've... The truth is, I think I've never dreamed about the fatwa. Um, 
I think it's, it's present enough in my waking hours um, for my dreams not to need to bother with it. So I don't, I actually really don't, I don't have very much memory of bad dreams. Um, I've always slept very well, I'm happy to say. Well, good. Mm. I want to thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. Salman Rushdie, he has a new collection of short stories called East West. This is Fresh Air. Linda Wertheimer's with us. Let's see what's coming up on All Things Considered. Linda, what do you have on the O.J. Simpson trial? The d opening statements of the defense attorneys today, Terry, and a very interesting and, and sort of combative opening from, uh, from Mr. Simpson's lawyers. Also, ABC is uh, taking an interesting uh, turn here. They're, they're doing a catch-up on the soap operas uh, for those people who are distressed to miss them, and uh, we'll talk to the producer of Soapline. We will hear from high school senior Megan Williams about her school in California. We'll hear about campaign finance reform, which the president said is a top priority. A big report on the last few days in Kobe from Julia McCarthy. Thanks, Linda. That and more on All Things Considered from National Public Radio. It was only three years ago that Congress enacted a law to create a monument to Thomas Paine. A lot of people have long thought that Paine was too dangerous a figure to memorialize. Critic Maureen Corrigan says that a new biography of Paine reminds us that both Paine and the revolution he helped incite were radical. Oh, what would Thomas Paine have thought about the democracy he helped bring into being if he could have watched the president's State of the Union address last night? There was Bill Clinton trying to tone his sagging image. Behind him, a gloating Newt Gingrich. And somewhere in the august Capitol crowd, a congressman named Sonny Bono. These are indeed the times that try men's and women's souls. Throughout his career as a journalist and statesman, Thomas Paine also had his share of image problems. His enemies claimed that Paine emitted a brimstone odor, they also accused him of being a drunk, a traitor, and an atheist. And when it came to publishing contracts, Paine could have used Newt's agent. Paine never made a penny off Common Sense, the pamphlet he published in January 1776. He thought it was his patriotic duty to make it available to everyone. Five months later, as a direct result of Common Sense, the Continental Congress issued the Declaration of Independence. Paine later went to France to foster the revolution there until he almost became a victim of the terror. But he continued to stick his neck out for the poor and powerless. In this country, he opposed slavery and even advocated a colonial form of welfare and social security. As Jack Fruchtman Jr. tells us in his stirring new biography of Paine, this famous firebrand was slow to ignite. Paine was born in England into a lower middle-class family, and for the first 37 years of his life, he failed at being a corset maker, a teacher, and a tax collector. When Paine emigrated to America, nothing in his past indicated he would soon become a world-shaking journalist. In fact, one of the many endearing things Fruchtman tells us about Paine was that he always found writing difficult. But through the influence of Benjamin Franklin, Paine got work as a magazine editor and essayist. 
After the enormous success of Common Sense, Paine fueled the war effort with his essay series, The American Crisis. On Christmas Eve, 1776, George Washington read Crisis One to his dispirited troops. You heard the first line a minute ago, but it bears repeating. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. The next morning, as we know, Washington and his troops crossed the Delaware, pummeled the Hessians, and turned the tide of the war. I confess I found the first half of this biography more compelling than the second, which discusses Paine's work in France. But that's probably more my fault than Fruchtman's. I can never keep those bloody French revolutionary factions straight. Throughout his book, Fruchtman manages to illuminate Paine's writing, his political and spiritual beliefs, and the contemporary historical context without sacrificing the narrative thread of a tumultuous life story. If, like Washington's soldiers, you need to hear some inspiring words in the dead of this winter, Thomas Paine, Apostle of Freedom, contains plenty. Maureen Corrigan teaches literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Thomas Paine, Apostle of Freedom, by Jack Fruchtman, Jr. Fresh Air's interviews and reviews are produced by Phyllis Myers, Amy Sallett, and Naomi Person, with Alan Tu, Nancy Updike, and Kathy Wolf. Research assistance from Becky Cohn. I'm Terry Gross. Fresh Air is now available on cassette. To order, call 1-800-934-6000. That's 1-800-934-6000. The cost is $9.95 plus shipping and handling. Not all programs are available. Support for Fresh Air is provided by the National Endowment for the Arts and from the listeners of WHYY in Philadelphia, where Fresh Air is produced. This is NPR. National Public Radio. On the next Fresh Air, The Hidden World of Islamic Women, we talk with Geraldine Brooks about the sheltered and segregated life of many women in the Middle East and about her own experiences as a woman reporting there. Brooks is the author of the new book, Nine Parts of Desire, and a former correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. I'm Terry Gross. I hope you'll join us for the next Fresh Air. Mm-hmm.